If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down. You hear about rock stars and you hear about these superstars being temperamental and throwing things and having tantrums. Not Prince. I don't know what he was like with his girlfriends or his friends. I won't speak to that. But in the studio, I assume everywhere else, if he was having a bad day, he'd just get quiet. Welcome to Create Like the Greats, a podcast where we take you into the inner workings of how some of the greatest creators of all time did or do what they do. We study the strategies, the techniques, the methodologies that some of the greatest creators of all time have taken advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Join me today as I speak with Dr. Susan Rogers. Dr. Susan Rogers is a professor, a neuroscientist, and a sound engineer, but not just any sound engineer. Susan was Prince's staff engineer during Prince's commercial peak and worked on albums like Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Sign of the Times, and The Black Album. And yes, you're right, I am talking about that Prince. But that's not all that Susan is known for. She's also the author of What It Sounds Like, a book that I absolutely fell in love with because I'm a psychology geek, a brain geek, and I love understanding the reasons and rationale behind why we do the things that we do. And this book breaks down why we all fall in love with music. She gives us real world examples that help us allow her to really understand and identify our own listener type. What type of music do you enjoy and why? But even more so, it helps us even understand and maybe even appreciate some music that you may have dismissed as trash. Reading this book, I was able to quickly realize that the reason why I like certain music and dislike certain music actually has more to do with psychology and neuroscience than I ever thought possible. This interview is important because in my opinion, some of the greatest creators of all time are musicians. The greatest musicians have created songs, melodies, and albums that have been listened to for decades. And while we don't oftentimes think about it, it's this music that oftentimes allow us to push through hard times. It allows us to navigate sensitive periods within our life, or it gives us that boost that we need to inspire and push ourselves to just give a little bit more to a project, an opportunity, and a creation. Some of these creators, some of these musicians are what Susan describes as Hyper-creatives, a concept that I'm excited to share with you and everyone else in this episode. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Susan Rogers. Let's get to the show. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. Not only are you a record producer, engineer, mixer, and audio electronics technician, you have a doctorate in psychology, studying music cognition, so much more from McGill, etc. And you have a great book called This Is What It Sounds Like. I've seen a ton of your interviews. I am super excited for this dialogue. So thank you so much for jumping onto the show. Well, thank you, Ross and Cinnamon, for inviting me on this show. I'm really excited about it. This topic of creativity is one that's fairly new in neuroscience right now. So reading about what it is and how it works is really good right now. It wasn't well studied in the earlier decades, but there's starting to be some good data now on what it is. A hundred percent. I'd be curious right off the jump, like what made you inspired to even go down the path of studying creativity at large and thinking about it with that psychological perspective and neuroscience perspective as well. You know, I think it's what drives every scientist. You just think it's cool and you're curious. We human beings have these clever brains and fortunately we live in a time where it's not hard at all to get food and shelter for most of us. Of course, not for all people, but for most of us, we managed to get through the world okay. So we've got this extra free time. Human brains just love to learn and they tend to be curious. And those of us who are cut from that cloth would rather exercise our minds than our bodies. We're not the most physically fit group of individuals, but we are, we are the curious types. I love it. Over the years, your background shows that you've hung out with some of the most curious, interesting, creative, fascinating individuals in history, I would even say. And I saw one interview in particular where you were chatting with some folks around the experience working with Prince and how Prince would arrive to create 
would you be able to give us a bit of a rundown on what that experience was like and how Prince set himself up for success? Let's start by establishing that Prince was no mere mortal. And uh, I'll give you an anecdote. An engineer named Dylan Dresdow, who worked with Prince in the 2000s, was on a panel with me and we were asked these questions and he said something I'll never forget. He said, after you worked with Prince, you had to unlearn Prince. So I don't want any young record maker out there listening to think that what I'm about to describe is how it's done by most people. It's not. The way he would work is he'd sometimes come into the studio with a song and sometimes not. When we were not on tour, when we were making a record, because he was either making a record or was on tour making a movie, we'd either work at home in his home studio in Chanhassen, Minnesota, or we'd work in Los Angeles at Sunset Sound. This is before Paisley Park Studios was built. So I'd usually get a call either from him or from someone on his staff in the morning telling me to come in to the studio. It would usually wake me up because I'd usually only have a few hours of sleep, but the phone would ring. We'd pick up the phone and you'd hear that deep voice of his say, Ready? Ready? Or sometimes Susan, can, can you come, come in? in? You always say yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, be right there, boss. Be right there. And you just get a fast shower and you get down to the studio. Often I'd race down to the studio and he wasn't there yet, but there'd be a note on the console that says, can you set up this, that, and the other thing? This is the instrumentation I need. Now, what he meant by that was, if you could just please route the signal for every one of these instruments so that he could do what he loved to do best, which is come in and work in silence. Well, silence for talking. He wanted to just go drums, bass, keys, guitar, lead vocal, backing vocals, ornamentation. If he could just go bam, 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 bam through each instrument, the guy was so hyper creative that his ideas just kept flowing. So I would come in, I'd see a note a lot of times that said acoustic drums or drum machine. Sometimes I'd come in and he'd already be there and I'd have to walk really, really fast just to get everything set up for him to go because he just worked so quickly. Um, he generally, I want to go on record as saying, was generally in a good mood. So you hear about rock stars and you hear about these superstars being temperamental and throwing things and having tantrums. Not Prince. I don't know what he was like with his girlfriends or his friends. I won't speak to that. But in the studio... I assume everywhere else, if he was having a bad day, he'd just get quiet. Just quiet. He'd go into himself and he'd shut himself off and he'd just work, work, work. But most of the time, he'd arrive and he'd be in a good mood and just move from one thing to the next. He, he was in his happy place. There was nothing else he'd rather do than either be in the studio creating or be on stage performing. That's what he did. That's how he filled his days. And that's demanding work. Could you take me back into time a little bit about your mental perspective on that type of environment and to be there and to be working on it? What was that like? Imagine this. So I was starting my career in 1978 when Prince's For You album came out, his first album. And I listened in Los Angeles at that time. There were two R&B stations, KJLH and KACE. Those were these stations. Go back and forth between those two stations. The very first time I ever heard Prince, I was on a bus going down Sunset Boulevard. And there was a kid in the back where I was sitting and he had a boom box and Soft and Wet came on. And I, I just remember thinking, whoever this artist is, I need to know more about this artist. And I think I, as I recall, I stayed on that bus. I missed my stop because I wanted the DJ to come on and say who this was. So I was intrigued from the downbeat, uh, quickly became a big fan, had all of his records, saw him play at Flippers in Los Angeles on the Dirty Mind tour. I will never forget mind being blown on that tour. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. So I'm in the 1999 tour. So he was my favorite artist in the world. And then one day in the summer of 1983, an ex-boyfriend who's still a dear friend, he called me and he was at Westlake Audio as a technician. And he said, Prince, put the word out through the grapevine. He wants to hire a full-time technician from New York or LA to move to Minneapolis, be his full-time tech. And that's what I was. I was a technician working for Crosby, Stills and Nash. As soon as I heard that, I just knew instantly, that's my gig. That's my job. So to answer your question, when I was in the room with him, making music, I was well aware I had what I considered to be the greatest gig 
you could ever possibly have. And all I wanted to do was to facilitate his creativity in his work so that other people would get to enjoy his music as much of it as possible. So I worked really hard to be his audio signal router to facilitate his creative ideas, get those ideas onto tape, get them off tape, get them mixed so that we can put records out there into the world as fast as possible. It truly was, for as hard as it was, it was also a dream, dream job. And how hard it was, did that reflect Prince's work ethic as well? Like how did Prince's work ethic play into all of this? Ross, one of the reasons I admired and respected him so much was that incomparable work ethic. He used to say things like when he'd be having a dilemma about which direction to go professionally, he didn't discuss those personal things with me, but sometimes we'd be alone for a long time and he'd just feel like talking, so he'd talk. And There was a phrase he would use a lot. He'd say, we put bread on people's tables. He used the word we a lot, and he took his responsibilities as an employer, as a boss, very, very seriously. When he was 24, 25 years old, he had a staff of people working for him, musicians and technical people and management. He recognized, now I'm employing people and I owe it to them to do my best. He's well known that he was religious. He believed that he had been gifted with a talent and that he would be doing a disservice to the God that he believed in if he didn't work as hard as humanly possible without complaint. You can hear from my voice, I'm suffering from a cold right now. And I was thinking about how when we were on tour, he never, the whole time I was with him, ever canceled a show. He was immortal. He'd get colds and flu like other people. He'd take Dayquil backstage. He'd just be drinking that Dayquil. He'd get on that stage. He just believed if you have the chance to do this, you have to do it. That's your job. And he took that very seriously. I was proud to adopt that work ethic and to keep pace with him for as long as I could, because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with your customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's kind of like trying to remember the name of the guy that you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Was it Don? Was it John or Sean? Who knows, right? It's like that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution program, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that helps handle frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps your reps anticipate customers' needs. And a full 360 view of every customer so you can go to market and your go-to-market team can have a pulse on the accounts before you try to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale, support, drive retention, and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service, happier customers at every single stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more with your customers today. In your book, you described the triple crown, where you talked about how critics providing fame, the public providing that sense of being loved, and musicians providing respect. I think still, even to this day, Prince still has the crown in many ways. Talk a little bit around that idea of the triple crown and how you would view the best path for a creative to even aspire and get there today if they wanted to. The triple crown is really rare and difficult to hit. It's like being an EGOT, you know, and if you're a young actor or something like that and you you plan, okay, I'm going to win these four major awards, stop, stop. Not that you can't do it, but why on earth would the first mountain you climb be Mount Everest? Climb a few little hills, work your way up to a few mountains and you get there. But you don't want to set yourself a task that's going to be impossibly difficult. You just might get there. But first you have to accomplish something. Show that you can actually be world-class great at a simple task and work your way up. So the Triple Crown refers to the different listening audiences there are for our musical work. There is the general public, that's the listeners we think of most of the time. There's other musicians who don't listen with the same ears as the general public. They tend to be snobbish and uh, they're listening for whether or not they or their friends could have done that. They're snobbish. I know these kids at Berkeley. That's just how they are. That's musicians. 
And uh, then the third audience is a really important one. That's the music critics and scholars, the writers, the journalists. They're listening for ideas whose time has come. And just like food critics and movie critics, they want to say, you guys, you got to see this movie. It's amazing. Or don't waste your money. Stay home. This movie's no good. So they're all listening for something slightly different, which is why it's impossibly difficult nearly to please all three audiences. One record rarely does that. And certainly you don't do that throughout your entire career. The example I gave in the book of someone who did do that for a long stretch of time, probably wore the crown the longest, was Duke Ellington. So Duke Ellington was the country's most popular band leader. Other critics revered him and musicians just thought he was a god. Really, really hard to do. Not Michael Jackson, not the Beatles, not Jimi Hendrix, who was a musician's musician but didn't sell as many records as Eric Clapton. Different audiences. Prince wore the Triple Crown for the Purple Rain album. It was a number one hit record with the public. Other musicians were like, mad respect. And the critics and scholars praised it as a masterpiece. So he wore it for a short time. Short time, yeah. When I was reading it, I was like, this is applicable to so many different industries as well. Like in a lot of different spaces, there exists that Triple Crown, whether you're thinking music, whether you're thinking art, you're thinking books, that type of concept exists in all elements of creativity and creative outlets. Exactly. And don't forget food. Food is such a good analogy with music because music is different from visual art and paintings. It's different from movies because you can consume it so rapidly. Three minutes, you consume a taco or you can consume a record in just a few minutes. No one would argue that McDonald's makes the greatest hamburgers in the world. But McDonald's probably sells the greatest number of hamburgers in the world. Different audiences. A gourmet audience is going to be different from the general public, which will be different from the food critics. And we're okay with that. We like living in a world where you can choose the thing you want to interact with based on what you need it to do for you. The public just wants a fun little record to give them an earworm. And this sounds good and it's, it's joyful, but the critics are looking for art whose time has come and other musicians are looking for inspiration. So they function differently. So one of the major themes of the show is creation. We talk about creating music. We talk about creating art, creating companies, stories, so much more. And that phrase hyper-creative is something that I want to just double click on a little bit. Could you describe to me what your definition of a hyper-creative is? When I did a little bit of research into creativity, I learned about a couple of circuits in the brain that have to open themselves up to allow creative ideas to flow. When we very first get inspired, the first moment of creativity, you know, your brain is wandering. In fact, mind wandering is the best precursor for a creative thought. And we mind wander in the shower or taking the dog for a walk or when we're idling, sometimes driving in our car, we turn the radio off. We just let our minds go where it wants to go. If you let it off its leash and you let it wander, sometimes it'll investigate something and it'll go, yeah, yes, that's a good idea. I could do that. Now, when that happens, there's a little circuit on the right side, kind of the right back called the precunius and that little guy says all right then let's go not a bad idea not a bad idea so that's where art originates and that precunius starts reaching out to other areas and it starts opening its little gates so that you can allow your creative ideas to flow so if i were to do this what would i need to do and you get enough original thought going on in there and the precunius passes the ball to another circuit also on the right hand side that is the craft part. And that circuit says, all right, then let's go. First, we need to build this, and then we need to build that. We need this piece of gear. And here's the practical method for making this thing come into being. In folks who are hyper-creative, their precunius and that other little circuit have a couple of faulty gates that you can think of as leaky faucets. Now, our brain is in inhibitory mode nearly all the time with 89 billion neurons up there at any given moment a human could say or do anything but they don't they choose from an appropriate set of actions and words and all the rest of the brain just keeps its little brakes on so inhibition is something that the brain naturally does but if you're a little precunious and the right temporal 
parietal junction have faulty breaks, what that means is your creative ideas just keep coming and coming and coming. So as you're passing the ball from art to craft, the new art keeps coming. Now, the precuneus is tasked with separating relevant from irrelevant information. So if I've decided that, I don't know, I, I need to design something, I'm terrible at this, but suppose I had to design a logo or some stupid thing like that, I'd have to open up that precuneus and think, oh, what would it be? What would it look like? And as soon as I get a single good idea that I think is a good idea, I'd say, okay, great, shut the gate, move over to craft, and now start figuring out how to design this thing. But for folks who are hypercreative, it just stays open. So Prince seemed obviously a hypercreative because of that tendency of his to just have songs coming and coming and coming. We needed to work so fast because he often had another song in the queue just waiting to get out. The next circuit is responsible for uh, revisions, being open, being open-minded to, to rethinking something, which Prince would also do on occasion, not a lot, but he'd do it on occasion. And that second circuit is so strong in the in the craft modality that that second circuit doesn't have a problem with saying all right i, I want to try it like this and now i'm going to change and i want to try it like that and i want to try it a third way the only other person i've known in the music business i think has a couple of faulty circuits in both of those structures because you'd be getting ready to hit record on the stereo tape machine and print a mix and he'd go wait the ideas just kept coming and coming and coming he's one of the most creative people i know Do you think it's nature or nurture in terms of hyper-creative? I'm uh, pretty sure it's nature. I think um, I don't know what causes those circuits to form in infancy and what's responsible for those leaky faucets, the broken gates there. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But in a lot of cases, we're born into this world. We're sampling sights and sounds and smells and tastes and textures. And our brain is pruning any connections that it says, well, I don't need this. This isn't important. And it's making stronger connections with those kinds of stimuli that you do need. Let's say your family goes bowling a lot. I don't know why I thought of bowling. But let's say they go bowling and they take the infant along. Baby's going to learn really fast the sound of that bowling ball and those pins striking. And, and baby's brain is going to recognize this is something the family's really into. This is something that's important in my world. But let's say you never go water skiing, so you don't hear those sounds. You're not going to form such strong connections there. Our brains are constantly organizing themselves based on what we're exposed to. When an idea is coming to life, within these brains of ours, how does that happen? A creative idea is starting to arise. Like, how does that take place? They talk about it in terms of mind wandering and spontaneous thought and the default network. So a hot topic in neuroscience right now is something called the default network. What it is, is down deep in the brain, it's an interconnected set of brain nuclei that are responsible for our self-image, self-consciousness, self-awareness. It's your sense of self down deep inside. There are also some circuits in there that are involved with approach and retreat behaviors where you might be shopping, let's say for clothing. The human brain is constantly keeping a running stream of decisions. So you're shopping and you're looking through this rack of shirts and you're going, no, 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 until you happen to see one that causes your sense of self to say, this is me. This could work for me. I'm intrigued by this, and you might select it and try it on. It works the same way. So anyway, there's the default network, and when we're asleep, we don't put any constraints on it because we can dream whatever we want to dream. Our brain's going to go wherever it wants to go or needs to go when we're dreaming. But when we're awake and we're doing what a brain does a lot, 30 to 50% of the time, we go into our own heads. That's good for a brain. We evolved to switch back and forth between the outside world and the world of our inner thoughts. You go into your inner thoughts sometimes, like if you're doing a podcast, you can't go drifting too far off because, you know, it'd be socially embarrassing. So you kind of have to pull it back. But if you're taking a long car trip or a long hot shower or something like that, you're free. You're free to, to let your brain think whatever it wants to think. So mind wandering occasionally causes a brain 
to come up with an idea that it recognizes as novel and useful. The components of creativity include original, it's got to be novel, and useful. It has to serve some function. Folks with mental illness will come up with all sorts of creative ideas, but it's not ideas that a lot of people can use. So you might come up with an idea and that's going to open up the precunius and that precunius is going to get more connected to your sense of self and you, your creative brain, is now working in a way that is unique to you, filtered through the craft that you have at your disposal. You may be able to do some of it by yourself. You may have to team up with a partner or an expert to complete some of the other tasks. You had asked earlier about the difference between Prince and a a lot of other artists who want to do everything themselves. I've never met a single one who could sing at the level at which he sings, plays drums, plays bass, plays keys, plays guitar, all at the level that he was capable of. He could do everything himself, and uh, not many people can do that. One of the things that stood out in your book, and I don't have a music background, so it blew my mind, was musical dimensions and aesthetic dimensions. The melody, the lyrics, all of these different dimensions of music. Could you just elaborate for some folks who listen to music, probably like me, but we just enjoy it. We just love to hear it and feel it but we don't think about the dimensions of it. Could you just talk a little bit about the dimensions that go into great music? So when you listen to a record, there are at least seven different ways that your brain can get a treat from listening. By treat, I mean your brain can release a little bit of opiates or dopamine that makes you say, oh, that was sweet, makes you happy. The default network that I mentioned earlier is intimately connected with the dopaminergic reward system because the default system is involved in approach and retreat behavior. So you check out something brand new. Maybe it's a new food or something. And you think, I don't know if I'm going to like it. I'm not sure. But you take a little bite. If it works out for you and you like it, you release a little dopamine and you're like, yes, this is now a new food that I like. You form now a connection between the taste of that food and your happy place. You like it. So throughout the course of our lives, we're hearing music all the time. We're not always paying attention to it, but imagine you're in the car, you're with your family, and you're going someplace, and you're happy. Let's say you're four or five years old. You're happy. You're with your family. You're going someplace. It's a, maybe it's a holiday or something, and everybody's in good mood, and the radio is on. You have coursing through your body a lot of feel-good neurotransmitters. Song comes on. The neural pattern of activation of a certain song, maybe a song, let's say, that matches the mood you're in, something that's really happy, seems like the perfect expression of what you're feeling right now. This is happening to us automatically as we grow up and encounter music in the world. What ends up happening is these positive and negative experiences allow each one of us to form a unique listener profile. Each one of us has a sweet spot on the dimension of rhythm where the groove just feels like perfect for us. Sweet spot in lyrics where the lyrics just send you over the moon. You think it's brilliant. A sweet spot in melody. You like certain melodies that may be wide versus narrow or uh, major minor key more than others. A sweet spot for sounds, for timbres. I like the old fashioned, those deep dish snares. I like a low tuned snare. A lot of people prefer the high poppy piccolo snare. And there are these three aesthetic dimensions that get activated when we appreciate all art, which can be fashion, or it can be movies, or it can be books, where you just uh, think to yourself, in my opinion, this is the perfect way to write a novel in the English language. This is the perfect way to act in a scene. This is the perfect way to design a scene with the set decoration. We have all these sweet spots, and that's what makes us all unique listeners. One of the things that also happens is like the shift in taste of music and what you like can evolve and can change. It's like a kid, you give a child sushi when they're four years old, they're going to think it's nasty, but you give them sushi when they're 35 and they think it's the most delicious thing in the world. Could you elaborate on how the brain changes to make room for something that at one time felt, uh, but now as a, as you age and things differ in your life might be amazing and exactly what you want. Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I assume a, a, a complex answer. I wish I knew more about the development of taste for food to see how that 
comes online. We all know that we that it evolves as we get older, but I don't know the stages of that. When it comes to music, we little children actually do not like sad songs. It actually can make them sad and they really don't like it. When they get a little bit older, they start to form a little bit of an appreciation for it. Another interesting fact is that little children are often suspicious of kids who like what we would call foreign music. So let's say you're seven, eight, nine years old, new kid comes to class, is from some other country in the world. You are comparing notes and you ask this kid, what kind of music do you like? The kid plays music from his or her home country. And if it's really different from your music, you're going to feel this apprehension. This is because when we are children, we're starting to recognize that music represents our clan, our tribe, our people. You're starting to see music as a representation of your society. And kids who listen to different music than you aren't you. They're not your people. So you you tend to feel suspicious. Then you get a little bit older and you get into high school and now you're a little bit more adventurous. And boy, this is a scary thought. I don't have children, but if I did, it would scare me. Teenagers are mostly concerned with how they appear to other people in their social environment. Nothing in their world matters more to a teenage brain than what the other kids think of them. So you need to establish your identity in high school if you're going to be part of a smaller group. A really easy way to do that is to establish your identity by wearing a certain t-shirt from a certain artist, by letting others know I like this artist. I wear my hair the same way as that artist and I dress the same way as that artist. So that's when we start identifying with artists to show who we are. When we get to college, now we've got bigger concerns. And this is when kids who are more interested in, I don't know, sports or other sorts of things will just kind of stick with what they know, the familiar musical path that they know. There's no reason to go out and seek innovative music But that subsection of young people who truly get neural rewards from investigating new music are going to keep being investigated as as their lives roll forward. Those of us who work in music, musicians and DJs and people who just have a lifelong love of it will keep exploring new styles. An interesting thing is that our brains are going to want the same sorts of treats, but our brains are okay with finding those treats in different styles of music. Because uh, if you're 17 years old, it's socially acceptable to like heavy metal. If you're 57 years old, not so much. Research has shown that the personality and cognitive profiles of young males who love heavy metal is nearly identical to older males who love classical music. They're the same listener, the same listener. They're, they're listening for complex music with a lot of changes in it, music that you have to pay close attention to in order to really get and really appreciate and find the rewards in, in, in listening to that music. Um, so you're the same listener your whole life, but as your life moves forward, you will be socially rewarded for certain styles more than others. So someone's listening to this and they're a producer, they want to create music that people love, people enjoy, they appreciate, that taps into all of the musical dimensions. They're thinking about this holistically. In the book, you talk about one of the important directives that you oftentimes will give students, especially producers, when they're trying to decide what something should sound like is, grow the seed, don't bring the seed. Could you elaborate on what that means? If you're a producer, an artist comes to you and they have something they want to say. Music and all art are about communicating. The very first thing you have to learn is what are they trying to say? Not just with their words, but with their performance gestures, their attitude, musical parts and sounds they choose. What are they trying to say? Some very successful producers do, but the majority of producers don't go in with a song and a style all picked out for an artist and slap it on them like a coat of paint. That would merely be stuffing them into a uniform rather than pulling music out of them, the style of music they naturally bring. So you have to be a really good and deep listener to hear the germ of their creativity, to hear their impulse, to hear what it is they really mostly want to express. Then you have to figure out how to make a record that expresses that. Now, you also have to assess the record's strengths and weaknesses. Does it have good lyrics? Good for you. 
you're in luck. Then you will put a frame around that vocal in your arrangement on that record. But good lyrics are hard to write. So maybe it has weak lyrics. That's okay. Maybe it's got a beautiful melody. If it has a beautiful melody, frame that. Sometimes it's not good in terms of its chord changes or its lyrics, but all right, great. Many great records don't feature a great song. You listen to Mother Popcorn or Funky Drummer. It's not a great song. It's great performance. It's great rhythm. So you decide which aspect of this particular creation is the one that we want to frame and showcase. And of course, you think about for whom are we making a record for the critics, for the general public? Are we trying to impress other musicians? Who do we want to like this? Uh, important question to ask. In the world of creativity, a lot of people oftentimes throw around this idea of like getting a creative block um, and just like hitting a wall, not being able to create anything. From your descriptions of Prince, like did Prince run into creative blocks that you ever witnessed? Like, was that a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can only be on output for so long. At some point, you have to be on input. And he was remarkable that he could spend an hour doing some non-musical thing and get inspired. The slightest little thing could inspire him. We were working at home and I needed to run out to the market. I think I had to get him something. I came back the paper bag and in that paper bag, I had the book that I was reading because when he'd do his vocals all by himself, I'd go in the next room and just read a book until he was ready for me. So I, I was reading, <laughs> of all things, Goethe's Faust, Bargain with the Devil. <laughs> what got into me? Who knows? But anyway, I'm reading Faust and I had a package of Tic Tacs, wintergreen, wintergreen Tic Tacs. He finished his vocal. I went into the control room. He came out. I could kind of hear him rummaging around in that bag. Next thing I knew, he wrote the song Splash. And I just remember the line in it, cherry blue, winter green. And I, I seem to remember there was another lyric right around that same time that it said something about a, a Faustian bargain or something like that. Just the slightest little thing would inspire him. Susan Moonsey, former girlfriend, took him roller skating one day. She just insisted, you've got to get out of the studio. Let's go down to the lake and let, let's roller skate. He came back so happy and wrote the song Strollin'. Had a lot of inspiration from that. I guess your question was uh, hitting the writer's block. And yeah, of course, he would just dry up. When he did, we would pull from the vault older stuff that he had done, put up the tape just to see, is there, is there anything there? And sometimes there wasn't. Sometimes he'd pull something from the vault and, and he'd get inspired just by listening to it and he'd take the song in a new direction. Sometimes he'd just do some really bad art. There's some crap that we recorded that is not good, derivative and imitative of himself and belonged in the vault. From a neurological perspective, what does happen in the brain when you hit a creative block? Like what's going on typically when that happens? I wish I knew more about the actual mechanism of writer's block, and I will have to get a little bit better versed in it. I'm giving a talk to the Society for Creative Neuroscience with Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies. We're going to talk about those things, but that's one of the questions I want to answer is physically what's going on in the brain. We know from studies of creativity that it cannot be forced, that it's going to come when it wants to come. It's smart for artists to recognize the conditions that are conducive to their creativity. There's so much going on in our unconscious minds that we're just not aware of. And so there are probably a lot of circuits in there that are just saying, I, I can't right now. I've got some issues and I just can't right now. And then sometimes the ice will break and, and it'll flow. In the recording studio, quite naturally, the longer you're on output, the more important it is to stop and go be on input, go get inspired. So I would discover that, uh, boy, if we hit a creative wall, I would so much rather just stop. Don't throw yourself against that wall. Go to the movies, go out for a meal, do something. But you have to tell your brain it's okay to not have an idea right now. And trust, it's going to go into its unconscious place, especially when you're asleep. And it's going to move some stuff around to be ready for you when you need it. If you're in a situation where you can't do that, this was a trick that I used to employ, and it sometimes worked. I wasn't embarrassed to do it. I would say to the band, okay, we got nothing. So now what I think we should do is think about the worst possible idea. What's the last thing this record needs right now? Didgeridoo, clavinet through a wah-wah pedal. What would make this record awful? Sometimes when you hear 
what it doesn't want to be, it can illuminate its polar opposite, what it should be. Right. This is not working because it's a very harsh, sharp attack sound. We need something really legato here. Maybe something that sounds kind of hollow and tubular. So sometimes a bad idea can trigger a good idea. And other times, I love when this happens, it surprises you and you realize that's not bad. There's actually something there. So yeah, you, you literally think outside of the box you found yourself in. and You just grab for anything and try it. Prince did that a lot. The last thing you want to do is beat yourself up when you're out of inspiration. Uh, that's not going to get you anywhere. You have to breathe deeply, accept it, and recognize that you and your brain are partners here. And if it's not giving you something, don't be yelling at it. Let it go where it wants to go. I think of brains sometimes as taking a dog to the dog park. We keep our brains on a leash during the day because we have to work. We have to take care of business. We have to, certain things we have to do for the majority of the day. And we don't give ourselves permission to mind wander. Especially in adults, we tend to view that as being socially unacceptable or maybe even childish. And I disagree with that completely. We need to give ourselves throughout our entire life permission to just do nothing, to do nothing. And also sometimes that can involve watching something really stupid on TV. Something you're really familiar with. Your brain doesn't have to think about at all. Don't think you're being an idiot. What you're doing is you're consuming the stimulus. It's got something for your eyes. You got something for your ears. And you're letting all those other smart circuits off the leash because they're not needed right now. You're watching a stupid movie. There's nothing to think about. You're just having a good time. And that can be planting some seeds that can lead to creativity down the road. What holds people back from even getting to that point? It feels like with technology, we always have apps and phones and computers, et cetera. People are probably listening to this podcast right now on a treadmill. They're getting notifications. They might be looking at a screen all at the same time, having that moment to kind of just like let the brain wander. What do you think, what would be your biggest piece of advice to somebody who wants to tap into their creativity, but doesn't feel like they can even figure out how to give themselves that space? I would advise that you get to know yourself, get to know your brain. When we mind wander, our brain goes to fantasies that it thinks would be kind of fun. So you'll think about things that are appealing to you. Uh, well, I was doing this last night. I couldn't fall asleep. And I was remembering the 1999 tour. And I was remembering Vanity Six on stage. And I was thinking, how did they come up with that idea for the cape and the gloves? And, you know, just let it go where it wants to go. Don't control it or force it to think about a certain thing. I could have woken up and read a book or looked at my screen or something. I didn't want to. I just wanted to go where it wanted to go. I owe my career to a capacity to recognize what my brain wants. When I was a little kid, my go-to fantasy was the recording studio and being there with musicians who were playing. Not playing myself, helping to bring records into the world because my brain wanted it so badly. I was able to point my body in such a direction that I could have that gig. Later on, my fantasies began to change. In my late 30s, early 40s, I began fantasizing about the natural world, consciousness and other species, and how certain things work, how brains and minds work. And my brain was saying, I want that. I would like that. That seems like it'd be really fun. There was no choice. After a few years of this, I realized I got to put my body right where my brain is. I got to become a scientist. One way or another, I have to do this. I made probably a, an unconscious decision, but I chose to uh, to work with Bare Naked Ladies who would give me that pop record success I needed to financially be able to make my brain happy and go be a scientist. Because I was so deeply in touch with this, I haven't been wrong so far about that. The thing that I'm all over and I think, I think I would love that. I mean, mull over for months and years are exactly, I'm right. It's what I truly love. So your brain, you take it off its leash, it's gonna show you who you are. Some folks are gonna listen to this and they're gonna say, I wanna be Susan. What would be your advice to someone who, let's say go way back into time when you were on that bus and you heard Prince's song and you were like, 
oh, this is my artist. What's your advice to that person today who is sitting on a bus, potentially listening to a podcast and they're like, oh, I want to work with artists. I want to then be able to learn more about creativity. I want to go down a path like this. What would be your advice to them? Well, I definitely advise that you do a music or an arts career first and do a science career later if you want to have two careers because the sciences will always be there. And being a college student freshman at age 44 was great. That was just great for me. So I'm glad I did music first, science afterward. You'll have to understand your artistic self to the point where you have to recognize what is the one musical skill you can do that comes the easiest and the most naturally to you, because that's the skill you're going to get up to speed on the fastest. So imagine you're out of shape and you go to the gym and the personal trainer says, all right, we got to work on this. Maybe your arms are better than your legs or your abs or whatever. So you've got some muscles that are pretty well developed and others that need to start from ground zero. It's a myth to think we've got to develop our skill sets in parallel. I don't know anyone who's successful in this business who did that. We develop our skill sets in series. Pause. You have to be able to show the world that you can be world-class great at something. That might be songwriting. It might be singing. It might be beat making. It might be any number of things. But once you show that you can get up there to speed, commercially successful, really fast, then the world will give you opportunities to add to your skill set. So for my example, of all the things I could do, well, I sure as hell couldn't write or play or sing. I wasn't going to be that. There was no way they were going to let a young woman in 1978 walk down that road of record producer. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I knew down deep inside I'd be the world's worst record executive. I don't have, I just don't solve those kinds of problems. I don't know how. I wouldn't be a good DJ. I wouldn't be a music business manager. But when I thought about the option of being an audio technician, studying electronics, repairing equipment, I knew right away, yeah, my dad is really mechanical. My brothers are mechanical. That's just going to be really easy for me, relatively easy. And that worked. Got up to speed on that first, added the engineering and mixing skills, and through working with a lot of different great producers, was able to add production a little bit later, got successful, able to add a science career later. A question for you, and this goes back to one of your earlier points around two things that you mentioned Prince had really great ability to focus, as well as the ability to have that flow of creativity. Could you just talk a little bit around the relationship between the two things? Scholars of creativity note that what defines creativity is at, at least three points, and I can't for the life of me, remember what the third point is, but I mentioned the first two earlier. One is originality, and the second is usefulness. If you're going to make something, you have to have a capacity to understand who it's going to work for, how it's going to work when it goes out there in the world. Does this, is this idea something that deserves to be made, or is this just a really bad idea? Highly creative people do have a capacity to tune out a certain percentage of irrelevant ideas and to keep revising their work in progress until it meets the standard that they're imagining in their mind. Other people get started on a creative idea and because they love the act of creation so much, they don't really have a strong sense of follow through. They will abandon projects before they're really done because often they'll lose this notion of what's good about it or this notion of who's this going to be useful to. I'm thinking of a song the Prince recorded. It's called I Am Five. He recorded it before I joined him. Lyrically, it's a little bit um, risque and could even be offensive to some people. I am five. It was way out of left field for him. It wasn't typical of what he normally did when they were considering whether or not to include it on a, a box set of stuff from the vault. I was in favor of releasing it because I thought it would show him who he is. But others were smarter and they recognized, no, we don't want to include this because it wasn't consistent with the image of music that Prince put out there in the world. So you have to have a sense of your own artistic identity so that you can make things that serve that identity. An important point to consider while we're on this topic is that in the case of Prince, any artist, Prince music was only a portion of the music of his life. Of his entire musical life, there was Prince music, the time music, Sheila E, Vanity Six. And that's the same for all artists. Sometimes you'll just have a hankering to adopt an alternative identity so that you can express another aspect of your artistry. Most of the time, we can't get away with that. We pick a lane and we kind of have to stay in it, even if our creativity could go to other places. 
we got to stay in our lane for the consistency and the usefulness of the product. I've got two final questions and I, I'm very curious to get a sense if we do them with all of our guests. Before you became a scientist, what do you wish you would have known? I wish I would have known that my brain, your brain, everyone's brain is so capable of learning new things. I didn't realize that I'd ever have a career other than the career I had when I was first starting out. I, really, my ambition was just to be a really great technician. And then I got lucky and I got to be an engineer and mixer. And I got even luckier and I got to be a producer. But I thought, okay, that's it. You've achieved more than you ever thought possible. When I started school, I was really scared thinking, I don't know if I can do this. The other kids might not want to sit next to me and the teachers might not want an older student. And boy, was I wrong, wrong, wrong. An older brain learns really, really well. It doesn't have the hormonal fluctuations. It doesn't have the social pressures to date or hang out with people. College years were the happiest days of my life and those were in my 40s and 50s. So I wish I had known that. I wish I had known how that a rich and active brain can keep working for you your whole life. So my last one would be, in order to be a great scientist, what have you learned as being kind of the most important skill to develop and constantly work on for yourself? Self-discipline and focus. I was watching Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars getting coffee. and He was with some comic and they were talking about a friend of theirs who wasn't very successful because he was easily distracted. And Jerry Seinfeld said a sentence that I thought was so great, I just wrote it down. He said, lack of focus is the single biggest enemy of greatness. Lack of focus. It's so important to engage focus and self-discipline. No one's gonna give you any more hours. We all got the 24 in a day. No one's gonna give you any more. And if you want or need more hours, you have to take them away from something else. So you're not gonna get to do everything you want to do. It's not possible. That's why it's important to know yourself because you're probably going to do the thing you want the most. Susan, thank you so much. This has been great. Really appreciate the time. If listeners want to learn more and find out more about you, where should they go? Oh, I think it'd be nice to have them show up on thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. That's the title of the book. Up at the top, there's a record poll. Click on the record poll and put in a record that just makes you swoon. I've had this cold, so I haven't gotten back to commenters this week, but normally I check out everything that people post there and I reply to them. And I've gotten turned on to some favorite new artists just from what people have shared. So yeah, join the record poll. Put your choice up there. I like it. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And I would strongly encourage folks to check out the book, What It Sounds Like. It's been one of my favorite reads for 2023 so far. Definitely opened my eyes to the wonderful world of music. So thank you so much, Susan, for what you do for the industry, for creativity and your work. It's been great to chat with you today. And I look forward to following more of your work in the future. Thank you so much, Ross. And uh, if there's an opportunity when I can come on again, maybe talk about something else, I would be delighted. Good luck to you. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. And I hope you're feeling better soon. If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down.